0: It's funny how the Reign of Terror also um, what do you do you call it Black Book or Reign of Terror?
1: I call it both interchangeably cuz nice. they're both sick titles and then they're one are both good titles. and one also then alludes of course to uh, the, the great the great Paul Verhoeven movie, yeah, so yeah. it's all connected.
0: Um what was I going to say? Should... It's a funny sequel to, to even though it came first to Danton. <laughs> picks up right where Danton left. <laughs> that's true. All right, yeah, let's Maybe get it. we should <laughs> Jesus oh, you want to you want to start? Yeah, let's get started. We're
2: jumping. We be able to use some of that. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the things straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route. Deploy our men and create an impassable barrier, a gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance.
1: I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> It's hot, it's hot. out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot.
2: Open fire! Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Gauntlet. My name is Andrew Stasoulis, and I'm here with... Ryan Saunders. And Eric Marsh. And for those who don't know, this is a weekly podcast in which one of us selects a topic, and the other two run The Gauntlet. Each of them is to select a film and bring it to the table for us to discuss as a group. This week, I was up in terms of choosing the topic, and my topic was Once Upon a Time, The Revolution. And before I turn it over to my compatriots, my comrades, I figured I'd say a few words as to why I chose this topic. Uh, I was... uh, a weird kid, a strange kid. I suppose I still am, but at a very early age. Honestly, I was trying to like look back and 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 figure this out, and I, I couldn't. But at a very early age, I was somehow introduced to the idea of. Revolution. When I was 12 years old, the earliest I can remember is when I was 12 years old, I did a book report on George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, his memoir of his experiences in the Spanish Civil War. And this was a very formative experience for me as a, a seventh grader. Yeah,
0: when you were 12, you I read 12. that book? I was 12, yeah. I oh did a book God. report on
2: it. And the teacher was blown away because I did a full breakdown on the various militia groups, like the various political factions, you know. There's so many. Man. There are so many. And I had a big I did it on a, a whiteboard and talked about Marxism and the difference between Marxism and anarchism and communism and the nationalist and, and the teacher was just like wide-eyed like what is going on and afterwards I, I gave this you know presentation and then I went to my next class and I remember I got a, an announcement that came up and it was Andrew Stasilos please report to the principal's office and I thought ah crap like I'm gonna- <laughs> I am I went too far you know like the
1: red scare yeah the red- <laughs> Dude,
2: honestly and I went down to the office and I was like whoa and then- they had a special, like, certificate for me, like, you know, an honor roll kind of thing, like, congratulations, what a great assignment. And the teacher was just like, I've never seen a seventh grader break down the political factions of the Spanish Civil War in all my years or whatever. So so then from then on, like, I just became obsessed with the idea of the revolution for for a while. And a year later, I actually tried to join the Communist Party of the United States of America. But my dad refused to drive me to the rally. There was a big rally in Chicago. And I was like, I called. I talked to somebody in their office. They gave me information. And then I asked my dad and I said, hey, can we, can you drive me to this rally? And he was like, what rally? And I was like, well, it's a political thing. And he's like, what? And I was like, oh, the Communist Party. Blah, blah. My dad freaked out. And my dad was like, no, no. He's like the FBI is going to be there, and guess what? They'll take down my license plate. You know, <laughs> uh, so I didn't get to go, and that kind of crushed my hopes of becoming a, a 13-year-old communist. But after that, and and since then, I've I've always been really obsessed with images of the revolution, thoughts on the revolution, as as we are, and as we've often also discussed and. And so for me, like, it, it just seemed like a great topic, especially I think right now, considering the past year, particularly the past several years and a lot of what's been going on. And so I wanted to see what kinds of films popped up for you folks when the revolution is the subject. So I guess I'd like to turn it over to you, Ryan, and see what was the film that you brought to run the gauntlet?
0: Sure. I spent a lot of time trying to find the right film, mainly because I wanted to find a film about a revolution I like wasn't aware of or one I didn't know too much about. And Marsh actually pointed out this film to me that he came across called Mabumi, which translates to Our Land. It is an Indian film from 1979, director Gutum Ghosh. The film is about the Telangana Peasant Rebellion, which was a successful peasant rebellion that occurred around the time of the partition of India, when India became unified after the British rule had left. So the film starts presumably in the 1930s when our protagonist is a young boy, and he is the state of Telangana is still, it's still a feudal government, and it's being ruled by the Muslim leaders that are called the Nizam, and they are essentially puppets of British imperialism. And it follows a boy named Ramaya, and he he's a son of a cattle herder, and he's, his father is a bit uh, defeated from his life as a cattle herder, and is telling him, you know, this is all we're ever gonna get in our lives. This is all we can ever hope for. But eventually, this boy Ramaya he leaves his village after witnessing various injustices at the hands of the land or- landowners called the Doras, and when his girlfriend is used as um, for sexual favors for these uh, nefarious doras so he bails and he goes to another local town where he works for like a wealthy merchant um, but then he ends up finding himself working at a factory in hyderabad the city where then he is exposed to marxist philosophy and unions and he decides to join the struggle he then takes all the things he learns and brings it back to his home village where they stage the rebellion and fight during the time period of the partition of india and yeah so that's the, um, that's the film I picked. Marsh, what do you
1: got for us? So I was thinking, there's, you know, a lot of great films about revolutions, whether it's the Soviets or various 20th century revolutions that were fictionalized or documented at the time. So I was thinking maybe it would be fun to watch a film about revolution from, you know, maybe one of the least revolutionary places in the world. Hollywood, Yeah, all right. (laughs) So over the years, I've encountered various sort of Hollywood representations of revolution, and, uh, you know, they're they're problematic. You know, it doesn't really jive with the ideology that's usually, especially in classic Hollywood, not really a, a place where radical ideas are forwarded. So I brought to the table the 1949 film Reign of Terror, a.k.a. Black Book directed by Anthony Mann. This film was... It's, like, sort of very kind of, like, interesting confluence of, like, forces that came together. It was sort of, like shepherded by Walter Wanger the producer who did uh, Stagecoach and Foreign Correspondent and uh, you know a bunch of Fritz Lang movies and Wanger like he had this like script in development and he wanted to reuse sets from a Joan of Arc film that he had made and so he sort of like put into motion this film and ultimately it was sort of co-directed in a sense by William Cameron Menzies the production designer and then it was shot by John Alden the great noir cinematographer so it's this, like, murderer's row of talent, all bringing to you Hollywood's sort of version of the French Revolution, or at least, a, a, actually, 48 hours in the French Revolution. France! July 26th, 1794. Anarchy, misery, murder, arson, fear. These are the weapons of dictatorship. One voice is heard. The screech of the guillotine. France lies bleeding, Paris an open wound. The grab for power is on. The story of the film is essentially, yeah, at the height of the Reign of Terror, a counter-revolutionary agent uh, is dispatched by the Marquis de Lafayette to infiltrate Robespierre's inner circle. And ultimately, this leads to this sort of deadline-based thriller plot where Robespierre has a black book full of everyone's names and their crimes against the revolution and who's going to be guillotined and all that. And so that sort of sets off this sort of chase where everyone's looking for this black book that has all the The names. The MacGuffin. Yeah, it's sort of, yeah, it is like a MacGuffin. It's all sort of framed under the guise of stopping Robespierre from becoming the dictator of France. And so like all these different people come together essentially to stop the terror and stop essentially the revolution. I mean, you could argue, as many people do, this is really the end of the French Revolution, right? Because then they're sort of spinning their wheels into Napoleon, and then the rest is history, the restoration of the Bourbons and all that. So yeah, that's sort of the gist. And it's, uh, I guess I should mention, it's like kind of unique in the history of Hollywood because it's a historical film noir. And that like, to me, puts it in a very interesting place, like along with the other Anthony Mann film, The Tall Target, uh, where... You know, there's like an assassination on Lincoln and it's like all on a train or whatever. So, yeah, those films really stand out sort of in the noir cycle as historical films and films that sort of prefigure man's turn to the Western, the past, right? These are his first films really uh, not set in the contemporary sort of world like his film Noirs were.
2: And yet a film very clearly clutching at the contemporary right oh my god yeah yeah.
1: it is absolutely like yeah explicitly trying to sort of you know tie the present to this sort of misconception of the french revolution Mm -hmm. so yeah i just thought it would be fun to look at (laughs) look at something from yeah classic hollywood especially uh, and see what's going on inside there
2: and i would say you know from even my perspective when you both chose these films and i i loved it because they were on the surface so seemingly different from one another two very different time periods two opposite ends of the world and i was very curious to see how they were going to come together and was like quite surprised how well they did how many despite their differences like interesting connections were drawn in my experience of of watching them both and you know, one thing I was doing as I was like thinking about this week and the topic and the films, a book that I'd read many years ago by Hannah Arendt on revolution. She had sort of written this, this text on, you know, the theories of revolution. And I, I picked out a quotation of hers because it was, it just stuck in my head after watching both of these films where she's sort of talking about violence, violence in the revolution, the relationship between violence and the revolution. And Hannah Arendt is is not a big fan of violence, certainly to the ends of, you know, as we can see that often happens in a lot of revolutionary conflicts and moments. But there was a, a specific line that really stuck in my head. And she said, violence itself is incapable of speech. And it made me think a lot about both of these films and the relationship between violence and idea or theory right? In Mm -hmm. in both of these films. And I will point out, I think that both of these films shocked me at times in their violent depictions. Mm -hmm. Mabumi particularly, like, builds to an incredibly violent climax, you know? And I think it has a very interesting comparison or contrast, but nonetheless, I think, like, both of these films, like, uh, try to address this issue, right? Of, like, what is the role of violence in revolution
0: right? yeah i mean and i think specifically with mabumi it's it is very violent throughout even when it's not literal f- physical violence
1: right yeah, i mean just the f- sort of the feudal structure is violent in and of itself and mm-hmm. it's sort of subjugating all these people to just yeah like a parade of indignities the first
0: half of the movie is like ruthless in the way that the feudal rulers and landowners are treating all of the peasants i mean there's that horrifying sequence where that woman says she wants to leave work b- just briefly so she can feed her child and the instinct of the landowner is just to say like oh you've got milk in your breasts like prove it let me see and then makes her derobe and even he kind of almost flinches at himself after she does it but it's just it is it's endless I mean and it is brutally violent throughout uh, which also did shock me and I guess that's you know that's something where when you were talking a little bit about reign of terror feeling it's grasping at the present there is something really strange about the time in Mabumi Mainly because being a part of parallel cinema in India and having less resources than a Bollywood picture. Just the fact that it's such a a low budget, almost emulating Italian neorealism, at least a little bit in its aesthetics and approach with so many of the performers being non-actors. There is something so strange watching this film that came out in 1979. And when you're looking at it, you're like, this thing looks like it came out in, you know, 1956 or,
2: you know. It it, looks like it was made, like,
0: as the events are unfolding. Absolutely. Historically. Mm -hmm. It looks like a much older film than it actually is. And yet there is something about the sensibility that is unmistakably 1979, both in terms of the plotting, because I do think that the film is, like, constantly moving forward and you're getting all these, like, tight scenes and all these events. But then also
1: that sense of violence that's throughout the whole thing. It's really blunt about it. And even the sort of unsentimental depiction of, you know, mm-hmm. say, like, the landowners. It like It's just very, like, matter-of-fact. It doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't try to soften anything throughout. So, yeah, it's like... It does feel, yeah, more hard-edged. Also, there's zooms. So yeah,
0: there's also zooms.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I (laughs) I really did feel through that first hour that you're describing, like I, I was also being beaten down. Absolutely. I mean, it was one. Yeah, endless. It was one thing after another, and it was an interesting sort of depiction of how these things like build. You know, Mm -hmm. certainly by comparison to like Black Book, Reign of Terror, where you're just thrust right into a climactic moment of this very complex and confusing thing. But to Mabumi's credit, like, they, they take time to establish the foundations, like the basis for the, the, the physical violence that is to come following the Spiritual violence, the emotional violence.
0: Yeah, and especially by limiting it essentially to a single protagonist, right? Watching like, how does this guy become radicalized? How does someone who doesn't have an education and isn't familiar with, you know, social struggles around the world how does he find himself like placed within that history and how does, you know, he learn to be able to like bring people together and unite uh, in a similar cause. Right. I mean, there's that great moment in the film where he's in prison with a fellow villager and he's talking about Moscow and he says, Moscow, what is this Moscow you're talking about? You know? is this is the guy that like also got like the hot iron put against his head.
2: And they yeah. Were like, the That's huge the road gash. to Moscow or whatever. Yeah. He's got this, <laughs> this horribly disgusting burn
1: now yeah. on oh. his
2: skull. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the- more violence that I was like Jesus. That that's horrible. Really, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And then on the flip side, right in Reign of Terror, certainly uh, the violence is is palpable, is present. It has a couple moments of very shocking extreme violence oh, for, extreme. for a classic Hollywood movie it actually kind
0: of reminded me of Phil Carlson's blunt violence yeah. I mean just Robespierre getting shot in the mouth oh, is yeah. shocking there's a, there's a couple guys who get yeah. like shot right in the face <laughs> yeah. and that, they're clearly getting <laughs> in hit in close up with blood
2: yeah they're clearly getting hit with like a little pressurized some sort of yeah. like pressurized gun of fake blood <laughs> it, it looks like, like it actually it's got yeah, yeah they are, they're getting hit like they <laughs> flinch when they get hit with that mm-hmm. shit you know like, it's yeah. so gnarly I'm so shocked I'm t-
1: telling everyone this is, like, the original Splatter film. They Dude. were the first one to, you know, squirt blood all over people's faces when they're getting shot point-blank range in a carriage while they're being hijacked.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? and stabbed and choked and beaten. Oh, I man. Mean, there are, is. Yeah,
1: there's multiple stranglings. There's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. It is a very sort of sadistic film and masochistic film as well.
2: To so that end, again, it's like that is one major departure between the two it's that in the case of mabumi we see the seeds planted and then here's why there would be this this outpouring of of reaction and violence and and upheaval and revolution revolt and and so for us as an audience we go oh we have we sympathize we empathize right and we go like i get it yeah Um, And we connect to that. Whereas in the case of The Black Book, it's like from the get-go, we're just thrown into that violence and we're forced to merely react to it from the standpoint of being like, this is horrible. This is horrible. This is what the revolution's about. It's awful. Like, it's anarchy. Everyone's just killing each other and shooting each other and stabbing each other. Mm -hmm. And they keep talking about it so nonchalantly. Like, yeah, this is Paris. Welcome to the revolution. Like, this is what it looks like. And again, right, that's like a major departure because, you know, here we have a very sensitive sort of political Uh, cry, right? Uh, For, you know, reform and and the dignity of people and and what happens when you stomp on them. And then again, as we've said, like the Hollywood
0: depiction of like you don't want this, folks. Like, this is what it'll look like,
2: right?
1: You know, Absolutely. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, in Reign of Terror, anytime you see anyone who is just like a citizen of France, they look horrified. Um, And not in the same way that, as you mentioned with Mabumi, all the planting the seeds, right? All those cutaways to all those amazing faces in the crowd whenever they're seeing something horrible happen, it's like you can feel it, right? Like, it's just so real, like looking at all of their faces and their reactions. So, like, it is limited to its perspective of you know following a single young man as he becomes radicalized but it's very easy to tell why the entire village is also you know united and joined with him cuz he spends all that time capturing all the faces in the crowd in, in that sense because
2: I felt the same thing, like, I even, as I was writing notes while I was watching it, like, at one point I just wrote down, like, I think it says right here, just faces of the people. And I was thinking of like, Eisenstein, you know, yep. in the same yep. way that, like, Potemkin, October, strike, again, like, builds the the foundations for the the orgy of, of violence and, you know, conflict that's going to come in the film. And again, the same thing with, like, these, almost like montages during some of these really horrifying moments mm-hmm. of just, like, stone faced people reacting, or not reacting right to yet another indignity of these like Dora's.
0: And, yeah, you know. I spe- specifically think of that part in the middle of the film, where after there's like a mini rebellion, where they chase that guy off of the farm, and then they they then take those three men, like shave them of all their hair, paint their faces, and then made them ride those donkeys, like sitting backwards. And of course, that's like horrifying. And um, but when you it it, it all registers so much harder when it cuts to all of those faces of all those people in the crowd you know you can you feel it so much more when you can see their eyes looking at it and it's true both their reactions and their non-reactions to something like that speak so
1: much right whereas you know because reign of terror is is a hollywood film and a product of its time in the late 40s especially that's a film that portrays the people as maniacs right oh yeah uh the people in this film as depicted are yeah they're the the sort of cliche cartoon version of the french revolution the bloodthirsty mob who just wants to see heads roll uh which obviously is true to a certain extent but uh yeah in this film it's it's grotesque it reminds me almost of the way fritz lang shoots like Fa the faces in fury when it's all sort of like low light everyone looks like a scary. Nazi zombie, like that's what this film is. It like opens up with you know this sort of like expressionist explosion of severed heads floating by the screen, superimposed over flames, and so it has <laughs> yeah right. It's got the it's got a you know that sort of perspective of of revolution. They do share yeah they share a certain amount of violence, but obviously you know there's they're they're opposites in in so many ways. But, but
2: you are right again. If there are throughout this film as well like a lot of faces a lot Um, of close-ups yes but deployed in a very different way for me it was this really interesting pairing of being like both of them had these moments of just these like montages of faces and close-ups and you're right in the case of mabumi as we discussed you know it's to it's to you know uh, on a certain sense align us with these people Mm -hmm. to to share with them what's going on whereas in Raid of terror like these people are they're antagonistic to us they're accusatory or they're they're conniving or they're you know in in some sort of like desperate kind of like i don't know like you said like zombies like they do they feel like this this otherworldly kind of terror and horror right and i will say like your your point is really good because though robespierre is presented unquestionably <laughs> villainous in yes. this right there's no for a guy who does have some historical ambiguity i think about yeah, where, where people fall oh yeah but even though yes robespierre is presented as unquestionably Like villainous man isn't necessarily
0: saying, "Well, thank God we have the people," right?
2: (laughs) It's like it's
0: like yeah. I I was almost even going to ask you, Marsh, what you think about this, and maybe this is something to talk about later. But the idea of the will of the people mm -hmm. and the film's own interpretation of that, or even maybe like an ironic sneering at that thought from Robespierre. That was something I was thinking about while watching the film. As it just because we're having a discussion right now about just the people and the faces and yeah, that like zombie element in Reign of Terror, like it does almost feel like this film for whatever Robespierre was thinking when he was talking about the will of the people, the film seems to have its own idea of
1: like maybe the will of the people isn't a good thing or
0: I don't know. What do oh, you yeah. think? Yeah. I don't
1: I think the film thinks that's a very bad thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean I think the film aligns itself with the more sort of Marquis de Lafayette, the sort of like centrist aristocratic liberal who's like, why can't we have the monarchy and a parliament? You know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, right? And it's like, no, stop, you know, stop the revolution. So yeah, but I do think what's interesting about that is again, even in the film, because it's just this, you know, rambunctious Hollywood potboiler, there is ambiguity because again, no one in the film is really presented with having uh, an ideological dispute. And yet in the end, Robespierre dies an idealist. When the mob comes for him, he says, if this is the will of the people, take me now, cut my head off. Yeah, so be it. And and so be it, right? And he's the only goddamn character in the film who stands up for anything. Absolutely. The rest is all personal politics. And what's interesting is there actually is a sort of parallel uh, to the historical, like, you know overthrowing of robespierre was a non-ideologically aligned group of people who were just like this guy's fucked he's gone yeah and then they had they didn't have a plan it wasn't an ideological project to overthrow robespierre No. so in (laughs) it is
2: like a confused
1: melee it (laughs) sounds
2: like in history in
1: history absolutely and so in the movie of course because it's a hollywood film it's like It's all about the personal and it's all about just these sort of petty grudges and these sort of slights and the the lust for power and the lust for other things as well.
2: Oh, yeah, it is kind of a lusty movie. Very much so. There are there are quite a few steamy moments in this. I mean, it is a seedy fucking experience to watch Black Book Rain and Terror. I think anybody who watches it today would be quite impressed by that you know that this is not some this is not your grandfather's 18th century <laughs> epic or whatever <laughs> totally. i mean this is like it is it's somewhat it, it owes a lot of influence i think to german expressionism as as you pointed out yeah. and like in its violence in its cynicism in its darkness the lighting the shadows
1: it's you all know, pervading paranoia yeah, yes,
0: that's the absolutely. thing I was going to yeah. say, I mean, just in terms of the style of the film, which is like, I mean, we could talk about that forever, but the, it is weird how at times it does feel like it's a film noir and at other times just a paranoid horror thriller. I thought it was so funny when there's the sequence when he, you know, he, he, the, the guys coming in pretending to be Duvall and he's like in the darkness, but you just get the the beams of light coming through the blinds in the window as if it was like a fucking office in the 1940s, absolutely. you know? Oh, yeah. so you have have all these things that are very literal film noir signatures but then yeah there's this also this heightened expressionist horror element to the film but yeah at the same time there's all this paranoia everyone's really horny but also everyone's really scared and everyone's like trying to stab each other in the back it engages with genre in a really wild way for for something from from that year
2: absolutely it's a movie that seems to sort of have its its claws in a lot of different, you know, mm-hmm. genre pools, that it is trying to be this epic, but it is also not trying to be a standard epic at all. And I think it, that's a big testament to Anthony Mann, who for me as a director, like, you know, so many of his Westerns to me stand out, uh, among other sort of golden age Hollywood Westerns, with their violence, their cynicism, the fact that they often feel more like crime films than they do, you know, American West
0: mythology, Mm -hmm. they seem so much more mean and cold and... But they can be very expressionist too. I mean, think about like some of those gunfights in um, uh, Winchester 73 in The Rocks at the end, you know? I mean, it's almost, it's just like, it does look like a German expressionist bit.
1: I think if you can... Maybe you know, sort of cheaply summarize Anthony Mann. It would be style and violence. I mean, and that's yeah. he—he's not really a filmmaker who exerted story influence too much. He would help, you know, like anyone did back then. But he was focused on bringing the material to compositional life and visual life and that was always his like primary concern was do something interesting visually and then also he was just always making movies that were extremely violent and that goes hand in hand with his style. Even watching Rain of... You know, I'd seen this once before and I remembered it as a stylistic tour de force and it absolutely is, right? Watching it again, I noticed, right? It's like he loves swish pans. Like who's into swish pans in 1949? He's just like flying the camera left right up down with these yeah sort of like flourishes of you know almost violent camera work yeah. to match the violence on screen.
2: It kind of reminded me of some of like Orson Welles' work yes. in the way that it unfolds and it just like the film doesn't feel like it has very many of these sort of like scene breaks. Like it feels like it is just constantly unfolding and twisting and turning. Like while I was watching it the the amount of like twists and turns and you know flips and reversals it was like I was watching like lucha libre wrestling i mean it was just this constant flow of action and violence Mm -hmm. and it never seemed to to stop and even when it did stop or or have a you know a moment of two characters just in in reflection or conversation like you said the way he frames it and styles it 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 feels so alive I mean, it's what, like 89 minutes? 89 minutes, minutes. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean,
1: unbelievable. You know, I'm really, gl- I'm glad you mentioned Wells because that reminded me, I wrote down a J. Hoberman quote from his book, Army of Phantoms, and he wrote, Anthony Mann imbued reign of terror with a comparable mood of urban anxiety, an urgent, almost Wellsian film of endless treachery and perpetual night. And then he refers to it as a political gangster film. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that rules.
2: In the same way, like, Wells had had looked at Julius Caesar in the 30s and been like, Julius Caesar's a gangster story. It's a fascist gangster story,
0: right? Yeah. It almost feels like at times in Reign of Terror that the camera is, like, in the ground, like it would be in Citizen Kane, you know? We brought up Ignati last week, and I'll quote him again. Uh, This week For he had a bit about Reign of Terror I read where he says it almost feels as if every character on screen is a 100 feet tall, because we're always looking up. We're looking at all these ceilings, and because of all the shadows and like the way people are like hovering with their presence over the scenes like all trying to top each other it does it feels like this parade of giants yeah
2: Yeah. even the the people because there's a few moments at like the convention where you know they've got that like insane like scaffolding that the you know almost like stadium seating that the people are sitting on and like yeah it's like a rear projection or whatever but it's like the way that Almost like telephoto flattens them out to just this one like, yeah, wall of angry
1: faces like looming from the floor to the ceiling above. Well, they didn't call the mountain for nothing in real life. <laughs> right? you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah,
2: I mean, you know, for, for me, like, you know, in thinking of like, revolution and depictions of revolution and the differences again between these two films it's like Reign of Terror to me is it's so emblematic of this time post-World War II in America and Hollywood we're, we're just just sort of, you know, revving up into the Red Scare of the, you know, 50s, particularly as it was sort of climax in Hollywood. But, you know, something that was a reaction, I know, I've, I've talked a lot, you both know, I'm, I'm like a big war film aficionado and read a lot about it and study it. And I remember once reading particularly about war films made in Hollywood after World War II and how a big emphasis on them was switching from like focusing on the squad and focusing on the men to focusing on leadership. To, to films that are about officers and, and this sort of idea in America you know, that, well, it's all well and good to have people doing their part, but where would they be without leaders? Where would they be Elite. without, yeah, right? Without this sort of officer class, this leadership, like you said, with Lafayette, and this weird final moment of this film between Fouché, who's this ex-secret police guy, who's just, by the way, I think I think my favorite character in the whole movie is Fouché, by the way. I, oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I, I love that guy. He is a, a Shakespearean, like... Uh-huh. I mean, he is just this, like, just awful human being, but one, of course, who survives, right? But, you know, Fouché at the very end, you know, they've gone through everything and he's standing there and there's this really bizarre moment where he just starts talking to some soldier on the street about this revolution, huh? They're kind of (laughs) like...
1: All he leaves behind him is stale bread. The end is always being put to some use in France, citizen. The art of being a Frenchman. To knowing what comes next. Have you any idea? I am neither a Frenchman nor a politician. I am merely a soldier.
0: Well, my friends, must be off. Perhaps we shall meet again sometime. Oh, uh,
1: by the way, I don't believe I got your name. My name is Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte.
2: You know, right. oh, okay, well, maybe I'll see you again someday. And I was like trying to understand that moment in the sense of like, are they saying like, boy, I really hope, you know, is it like, is it like looking forward to Napoleon? Like, like, boy, when he gets here, everything gets cleaned up for a while, you know? <laughs> like,
0: look at all this madness. I think it's ironic, right? Yeah, it's a I, to me, it read as, like, one of those jokey Hollywood, like, nudge to the audience, like, ha-ha history, you know, you all know who Napoleon is type thing. And it is really jarring, though, when it happens, because everything leading up to that is pretty intense. I mean, because the climax of the film is is dark and expressive and weird, and then, like, yeah, you get this, like, like goofy little Hollywood toss-away, you know, oh, you know. But, yeah, Fouché in that, I, I think he's just, like, so unbelievable. And there's so many good
2: characters, so many good performances. We were talking about it a little bit beforehand, and like this the Fouché, this the secret police guy is played by this guy, Arnold Moss. And the whole time I'm watching him in this movie, he looks so fucking familiar to me and I'm like I love this guy I've seen him in so much like he's always so good and then like afterwards I was like looking him up and I'm like I've never seen a single movie that this guy's been in but he just seems so uncannily familiar right and I don't know if that's just because like he disappears into that role like he embodies it so well he's just so effortless in in his performance but the the cast has got so many great performances aside from him Like, I think Richard Basehart as Robespierre, there's some really interesting things Mm -hmm. going on there with both how the character's written and how he plays it. Did either of you get this sort of vibe, you know, that they were almost trying to suggest he was, you know?
1: Saint-Just is the name. The shadow of Robespierre. Wherever he goes, I go. Except here, he doesn't like women.
2: Yeah, he's not interested in women. Yeah. You know, and then he's presented as this, you know, dandy. Like he's yes. very
1: he's getting his powdered wigs on. They describe him in the beginning, right, in the voiceover, they do a little breakdown of all the characters. And they, they describe him as a, a fanatic in a powdered wig with a twisted mind. Right. And like he's the joker. The <laughs> a, he's a twisted mind right. of Robespierre.
2: But again, you know, it, it strikes me as, you know, this like that Hollywood moment of just being like, well, you know reds are all also sexual deviants and homosexuals and, you know, people not to leave your kids around, right? And I feel like that's kind of an angle that they're also trying to to take with Robespierre, right? Yeah, definitely. This, you know,
0: (laughs) great Hollywood liberalism, right, you know? I was thinking of, like, the one... The, the sexual encounters in Mabumi, and the, the 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 one really great one where, well, I guess it's a whole sequence, right? Where there's he's working for that wealthy merchant in like the middle class village, right before he goes to the big city, and the merchant's wife is like, oh, don't don't keep sending him away on errands, like keep him keep him home with me. We've got housework that like I need him for. And then of course when the husband's away, you know she's like she's wrestling him on the bed, and she's like, oh come here please, like let's go let's go, and he's like whoa like what's going on, and then his his drunk buddy gives him grief for it later. He's like, "You blew your chance, man." Oh well, dude, he he barfs all over. The, he does yeah, it, oh, like, well, yes. well, that's later. That's with the prostitute, right? Because oh, like, yeah. he's like drinking himself into a stupor because, like, then that woman, you know, she's like treating him like garbage at the the, the merchant wife. You know, she's like, "Oh, you're a thief," and then they find the stuff. But he's like, "Oh well, because because I didn't fuck her, like she's gonna treat me like shit. I'm just gonna collect my wages and bail." And that's when he becomes yeah, he gets like sloppy drunk, and his buddy's like, "You know what? you know you need? I know just." the girl for you and he takes him to her and yeah she's like all right your buddy paid let's go and he just gets up it's a handheld shot you know something's gonna go wrong and he just barfs all over the floor <laughs> it's, right it's in so front gross. of her and she's immediately like oh fuck yeah, get this. the fuck out of yeah here. like <laughs> out of here man that shit's so good <laughs> yeah but also
2: like this like really touching like he particularly you know as much as that films about the people as well that, that this like you said the, they're anchoring it in this in this one man you know Ramaya and his growth and development because mm-hmm. From the beginning, like we were kind of joking around about this too, like there's this big time jump. The film opens and he's a child and we yeah. follow him as he grows and as he ages. And it's almost naturalistic in its depiction of his maturation, like his first love and mm-hmm. his heartbreaks. Yeah, and- it's really
0: tragic. I mean, my favorite moment from the film um, and the moment when I was like completely sold on it is in within the first like 15 or 20 minutes. He finds out that he needs to like keep working for the Doras, even though he does want to. He keeps telling his father, like, I want nothing to do with this. And so they're carting away a bunch of stuff and he's carrying a mirror over his head. You remember this? And they're like, they're kind of marching. And say so at one point he like puts the mirror down just to take a break. And then he looks at it and he's like looking at his reflection in the mirror. And he's offered this presumably
1: like, for the first time.
0: Presumably for the first time, exactly. And but it's also you know like just the poetry of that, right? Like here he is, he has a moment of self-reflection, something he never has time for, and immediately it's stolen away from him. And you get that great horrifying insult where he says, "What are you doing? Just dawdling around like a bridegroom, admiring yourself yourself. like a
2: bridegroom." Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: you know. Mm -hmm. And but it's like it's so sad, but it's just it's so touching that moment because yeah, here he is, he finally he's like confronting his image, he's thinking about his life, he's like you know, who am I? What's my role? Like, what what does life have to offer for me? Um, and it's immediately stolen from him, right? But he has that, right? Like, it's like that. that's like one of the first seeds in the film. And yeah, and then it gets even more tragic when, yeah, he has his first love, you know, he's like, oh, we're so close right now, you know, he's like, oh, so I hope I never lose you. And then these landowners are stealing his woman, they're like forcing her into, you know, sexual coercion. And he can't handle it. He breaks. He completely falls apart. And he ditches her. And it's really it's it's sad and, like, cruel, right? And then and then there's that also that really horrifying line where she says, like, well, I didn't let him touch my breasts. Like, I can still have milk, like, for our child. And yeah, and then so he can't handle it, and he bails. And because there's all these other, like, there's all these things about different, like, gender roles within, like, this village that he, like, can't, you know, handle. So that's, like, why he breaks and then, like, you know, gets drunk in this other village and everything like that. But yeah, it is, like, a really uh, heartbreaking uh, first first chunk of the film yeah and again though
2: you know like you 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 really watch him grow and going even through that and then this period of being introduced to you know Marxist thought and and learning to read for the first time is basically an adult man like you're watching this person like develop and grow in ways that's like really touching so as the film even builds and and comes to its conclusion like this is a a, a full human being that you feel
0: like you you understand their journey. You feel like you have a really personal stake in the revolution by the end. Absolutely, without a doubt. Absolutely. And it's interesting too, right? Because there's like so there's some conflicting styles within the film, I guess. As we're talking about all the the stylistic like impulses of Reign of Terror, like with the Mabumi, we've get a very seemingly naturalistic look at his growth but then every now and then the film kind of diverts into some sort of like documentary impulse right where you have the narrator who's giving you like some like kind of like a voice of God like here's the history of um, the labor movement in India like here's what's happening like outside of this like this community that we're offering you a glimpse into and then it also does something which I love in Indian cinema and especially in like parallel cinema and you don't see it a ton as primarily because in, um, you do see this in Sai Ray films, but not in the ones that have been restored, which is like a weird thing, but even the like social dramas from India tended to have songs, like one or two. And this film does have two with like full lyrics and it's like a performance. And so Sai films, like some of them do have like songs in them, and he has like some more like populist entertainment. But again, it's like catering to this like Western idea of what Indian cinema is. But I think it is important to acknowledge that parallel cinema did often have songs in them, and I think it's it's like an incredible narrative device and like especially like so after like the successful revolution they're like ah sing for us you know and he's like of course
1: like that right? that's you get the like real like high point of the movie when maybe not the high point right but it's definitely the most jubilant and where you f- just feel you know she feel pretty good about everything yeah. for, for a minute right yeah it's like and it's a wonderful yeah. release and the dancing is uh is good as well i mean and they're just like jumping around it's not like <laughs> it's not choreographed
2: it's a, yeah it's a joyous moment you know it's as explosive and improvisatory as a lot of revolutions can sometimes be of upheavals of people finally, you know, fighting back and snapping back and and you not being able to know when that moment's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. But then that, that just outpouring of energy and emotion, yeah, it's it shouldn't be choreographed, right? Like, if it's choreographed, that means somebody's got devices, right? Somebody's got designs, right? Compared mm-hmm. to, like, Reign of Terror where, you know, when you hear about so many of the, you know, these sort of revolutionary moments, like how, especially with Robespierre, how, how choreographed his image was. And again, even in the film, like, he wants to be dictator, and, you know, the Black Book is a scheme by him, even. It's not just something that happened. Like, everything is, like, a scheme. There's yes. so many double crosses, and everybody's trying to jump two steps ahead of each other, compared to Mabumi where it's like people are sort of making this up as they go along you totally. know they're, they're learning as they go you know and it is awkward but that's what also makes
0: it so human and touching mm-hmm. right i really like whenever they are jamming about what the hell they're gonna do next and trying to figure everything out there's like a constant reminder of like being patient they're like no 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 impatience like it's a bad virtue like, like get that out of your system because there are a few like impatient figures in the game Well, gang. sure. there's
1: always going to be the p pe- those people in any revolutionary situation who are like let's go right now let's kill him let's blow him up let's go and then there's the other people who are like wait no this is a historical process or whatever Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. again back to you know the sort of action theoretical you know dichotomy or whatever but I do think like what's really what really caught like my eye in Mabumi uh, and especially this goes into leans into more of the documentary aspect but there's a, a couple montages in the film that I just love because they're very much in that spirit of you know materialism and being like look at the labor like look at his hands look at him work look at him read and there's a couple sequences right where it keeps using the smokestack of the boiler as this threatening image that is contrasting with his growth and this sort of, you know, just inanimate object, but it's like cut almost in a Soviet way mm-hmm. to be like, this is what, you know, ultimately his his sort of spiritual or, you know, revolutionary communist enlightenment is going to be like, yeah you know, overthrowing it's... these symbols and overthrowing, right, the power structures that they live in. And yeah, there's a couple, at least two big sort of montage sequences where, uh, again, it's like focusing on the material aspects of his life and then intercutting them in a sort of poetic documentary way yeah it's
2: like the the, the, the spinning wheel and strike. Right, like yes. that, they keep cutting back to. It's like the wheels are turning for these people.
0: Yeah, because I think, it, as, especially with like the smokestack and him like developing a political consciousness, like as a worker, there's that great montage sequence where you know you get the shot of they're working and that guy gets his arm like smashed in the machine and he like collapses and the camera collapses with him and then it cuts to them painting signs for their protests in the street. You know, mm-hmm. it also the film does a, it, it, it about that like documentary aspect too there's all those like festivities that you get to see like early on in the film
1: yeah there's rituals sort of yeah community rituals placed throughout the film uh and i'm i i just i'm too ignorant to suss out the progression of them but there is a marketed difference right between the ritual scene in the beginning of the film where you see a guy like gut a goat he mm-hmm. like
0: rip his yeah, he really like rips rip, the throat out of the yeah, goat with r- his uh, teeth yeah
1: and it's a very sort of like old world kind of ritual versus then as you go through like Rama's life and then he's like waving the the Soviet flag with his brothers and comrades you know uh, in labor and at these strikes and things like
2: that and even by the end when now it's the Indian Union and we're seeing like the newsreel footage of the uniforms the army they're right. parading they've got their rifles up you know they're like they're bringing order you know like again a ritual that keeps building to mm-hmm. this now this state this defined
0: yeah but then even that state is like a little i mean there's so much i'm i have a lot of questions about End of Mabumi because you know that India did not become a communist state, <laughs> obviously. But then, so yeah, there is. We were talking about that moment of jubilation. We get that great song. They're like, oh, Nizam of you know, you worsted the Nazis. Like here we are, we've succeeded. But then they start discussing, and yet yeah, the Indian army comes in, and they're trying to bring Hyderabad and Telangana into the union. And they sort of you know, you, you have that round table with all the guys and they just say, you know, like, well, it just fate. Whatever happens, so be it. But they keep fighting. But then yeah, you get all that footage of the Indian army like in their uniforms, like charging in and you know our guys like don't really have a chance.
2: Well, that's a really good point. I I thought about that moment particularly because I was very impressed as I watched this film with the editing. And I think we've already been discussing that, like, oh man, like you know clearly watched a lot of eisenstein right mm-hmm. and understands you know editing the, the dynamic aspect of editing right so well that there aren't these wasted moments and that line that you're talking about where they're sort of talking about what's to come and the revolution perhaps falling apart you know their revolution anyway falling mm-hmm. apart their particular one and that character makes that line about well you know it's it's fate what what's headed for us and right after he says that line it immediately cuts to the Indian Union, now the Indian Army's soldiers like loading their rifles. Mm -hmm. And it's like such a dynamic cut, right? Because it's like what's coming this is what's coming, right? Here we are. We're having this moment, this jubilation. This we 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 achieved what we wanted to achieve, but then people kind of saying, "But they're not gonna let. <laughs> they're not gonna let us. <laughs> they, there's no way they're gonna let us have this." And I think for me, again, like in picking this topic, and and for somebody that just like loves, you know, and has always been fascinated and wrapped up in in you know revolutions and depictions of revolutions, I feel like there's often this 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 similar kind of arc where you have this you know, this build then this outpouring of energy and violence and these moments of achieving this, this sense of success, right? That we did it, we, we got something. And you even see it throughout history, not just in like movies, right? This sort of revolutionary Always. peak yeah. that then starts to crumble and fall apart by various forces, internal, external. And you see that same sense of, oh man, we were so close, we had it and then it gets taken away. It gets taken away from the people. And, you know, to me, again, in this film, like that's that's
0: they, they handle that so well. It's so crushing in this film because mm-hmm. they get the land, you know, like they succeed. They've yeah, like they like just they the distribute the land.
1: that land. And then basically, you know, in part of the deal for them to join, you know, the, the Indian Union, uh, they have to agree that the Doras come back and reclaim, you know, their land. Not dissimilar to, right, what what happened in the years following Robespierre, where, you know, they brought the church back in and they brought the aristocracy mm-hmm. back in, mm-hmm. right? That's always what happens. It's like the entropy of revolution. You're going for this goal. It's, you know, idealized in some kind of way and you achieve some, some sort of form of compromised success, which you nevertheless celebrate. And then the counter-revolutionary forces internally and externally are put Put into motion right and i do think it's interesting right even for both of these films they end, they both end on yeah this these bitter notes because even if you're <laughs> No matter what side you're on watching Reign of Terror, it's like you lose because ultimately we know what happens. It's like Napoleon and beyond that, then yeah, the restoration of the monarchy. Uh, So unless you're a monarchist, you probably think, yeah, whatever happened after this is like not good. Uh, Just as we see in (laughs) Mabumi, right? It's like we see our guy, you know, face up in a ditch and we know that yeah, they probably didn't get to keep the land, they just distributed, and it's heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, thinking about, like, the sort of how, you know, the, the long-term, like, the, this thing kind of, like, is still an illness, I, I, I found a funny note that Queen Elizabeth um, was gifted a, uh, a necklace from the Nizam of Hyderabad in 1930 at her wedding. And there's a whole Wikipedia page about this necklace, the, like, Nizam's
1: necklace for of for the queen. Did she know that that came off the backs of their hard labor?
0: Uh, you gotta wonder. I mean, that necklace is still being worn by people in power, you know, like, this shit's if still If more people on. had
1: seen Mabumi, then they would know that the Nizam, you know, not a good situation. When you're doing feudalism yeah. in the late 1940s. <laughs> yeah stop doing that okay stop doing <laughs> maybe a little behind
0: the times yeah
1: i mean in that you know again like i'm just a, i'm just a dumb american and i'm like yeah you know just i didn't know that right i mean of course there's there's various forms of slavery going on to this day right but like this in the mabumi ends when my parents were alive and mm-hmm. these people were living under feudalism uh and again that's also just yeah you know what really affected me watching the film is just yeah just sympathizing with this guy so hard just being like yeah fuck this shit get Get, yeah get out get this out of here
0: I love that at the beginning of the film it like lays it very clear like the way that Britain did like underdevelop India right yeah. when it does say like Nizam, just puppets of british imperialism. It's like you want to know why we have feudalism still because it's easier for England to control India if we have feudalism. Like that's so of much course, easier they don't like, give like a they'll shit. just subjugate everyone. Yeah.
1: Thank Britain for that shit. I never thank Britain except for their uh, detective shows, which I love. Sure. Inspector <laughs> Morse if you're out there listening, uh, I don't know, send us an email. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh, same and to Godem Ghosh, because I'd love to have a conversation with you.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're going to Zoom him in one of yeah. these days. He does speak English. We, yeah. we found a, like an interview with him. and he, uh, He's
0: awesome. Yeah,
1: he, <laughs> he's got a lot of opinions about film history that I think I would like to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a good mustache to go with mm-hmm. it. Uh, so I was thinking, you know, we've sort of connected these films a little bit. But I want to disconnect them a little bit. Yeah. Because I have I have a sort of just very basic kind of, uh, you know, breakdown of some some opposites. So I've got, you know, Reign of Terror, uh, as pointed out by many people who've written on the film, right? It's like I mean, it takes place in Paris. It's an urban film, but it also feels like late 1940s urban in terms of how sort of cramped it is. And when they, you know, they go into the bar with all the. All the revolutionaries, and it's like, yeah, a real, it just feels like you're probably in a tavern in New York, minus all the goofy costumes, right? So, you know, obviously Mabumi, mostly rural, you know, kind of hops around, but it's, you know, it's about a peasant rebellion, right? Yeah. So we've got a little urban-rural divide, we've got a sort of dark versus light uh, visual divide, Mm -hmm. at least in the sense that Mabumi, very much like a a neorealist daytime kind of film, with some you know, uh, expressions of of heavy shadow in a lot of the night scenes. There is some, like, very good, low-budget kind of resourceful lighting going on. There's that
2: beautiful... Um, bit near the end where there's a firefight taking place at night and there's an old woman watching it oh and all God, you yeah. see are the muzzle flashes yep it's totally black except for these muzzle flashes and again it cuts back to her and she just looks so depressed and it's just like here we are like this is it this is what this is what it's ground down to just people shooting at each other in the dark
1: that's such a striking sequence it is with the yeah just the pure darkness being lit up it's uh it reminds then, yeah, me of then... having like roman candle fights except uh, <laughs> this is much more serious. Totally,
0: I think it's the same sequence. There, I, there may have been two night fights, but then there's also some of those shots that are almost like pitch black. And then um, the Indian army like rides in with their torches, and they start like lighting yeah. things on fire. And then like they're there, then you get a source of light, and you could see those soldiers on their horses. Yeah.
2: But we, 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 stole your thunder there, Marsh. Keep going. Yeah, no, you know, no. <laughs> oh, that's good.
0: That's
1: good. Right? We didn't got... need to cut you off. That's why we're here. We're here to cut each other off. (laughs) We've got essentially, right, counter-revolution versus actual revolution Mm -hmm. because Reign of Terror, they're trying to, yeah, they're trying to roll back the revolution by getting rid of Robespierre. And in Mabumi, they're just trying to, yeah, overthrow their feudal overlords and, and get what, you know, as they point out, was theirs uh, rama's dad is even like oh yeah my grandparents had land they just systematically took it away from us since then right it wasn't even that long ago that they had more rights and more land mm-hmm. as even like you know serfs essentially right so yeah they're in the end of their rope there uh we've got obviously hollywood versus parallel cinema two completely different impulses and orientations of you know a sort of uh, entertainment versus uh art kind of situation going mm. on. Uh, and then, of course, yeah, you know, Reign of Terror is kind of like a bourgeois, liberal uh, kind of take on the French Revolution, as you would expect. Uh, and then is like a straight-up, yeah, Marxist kind of look at a guy who, yeah, learns to be a Marxist and a revolutionary uh, from nothing, from, you know, a hut that has nothing yeah. in it, yeah. essentially.
2: And in that sense, too, I think, you know, one, Mabumi is is a... Call to action, a call to activism, whereas, you know, Reign of Terror (laughs) is a a call to pacifism, right? Yeah, totally. The Guardian of Sleep. It's like, no, 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 (laughs) none of this. We don't need that. Thank God that's over with.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, Reign of Terror is very much like, because even the film ends, it says, the end. Of the Reign of Terror, <laughs> yeah. like you know, like revolution is scary. Like you don't want to be doing this. And then yeah, Mabumi has like a bit of like a like a sad like note of fate at the end that you know the Indian Army is coming in. Um, it is still like ultimately like a hopeful like look at the future and essentially because it is showing how people that don't have um that access to history can then like figure out a way to learn and then inject themselves into history and create their own history and create their own revolution. Well. Yeah. Yeah, it's,
2: you know, and you both know me, um, I'm always connecting things to my love of Gilles Deleuze and the concepts of of a lot of his writing. But it's, you know, for me, like one is sort of saying that the revolution is, uh, is an act of becoming and as such, never an act of finality. And I think that that's why so many revolutions get betrayed in the long run, because especially with more, you know, liberal or reactionary elements, they will look at the initial chaos and disorganization of a of a new government trying to form a new system something that maybe hasn't even been tried and they always use that against it right to say like a revolution okay well what how is this any better right look at how disorganized this is look at this chaos no 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 no. we need to have the solution that's going to fix everything and then we want that 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 finality that simplicity that everything's great and when there's difficulties and when there's confusion that's always levied against it when losing sight of the fact that you know a, a revolution is a, is a process that should continue to flow and turn and change and grow and develop and yet so many get cut off at the knees before they even can learn to stand and walk right and i Absolutely. think that that's what mabumi's about and and as you said perfectly that mm-hmm. you know reign of terror is totally against that it's like the same thing with the the paris commune of 1870 and the way that people looked at that moment and said like What do you? This is chaos. This is utter chaos. Look how disorganized everyone is. So we might as well just go in and crush it, right? (laughs) You know, like no point in having this. The forces
1: of reaction never sleep, Andy.
2: Absolutely. Same thing with the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. You know,
1: like. Yeah, I think like one one thing to know, and I mean, it's you know, this is not an accident, especially in old Hollywood films, but Walter Wanger was. You know he financed the film and he sort of dictated its politics, which was cleverly reworked by Mann and Company and Philip Yordan. But essentially, he told them what to make. and And I have like a bit here from a, a biography of Wanger where it says Wanger instructed the writer to portray the revolution as neither the liberating overflow of a decadent aristocracy nor the regrettable destruction of Griffith's orphans of the storm. Instead. He wanted, quote, the spirit of cheating cheaters that pictures of this type have had in the past with lots of devices and a great deal of suspense and loaded with gags.
0: (laughs) Loaded with gags. Speaking of that a little bit, if you had watched Reign of Terror and, like, not known anything about why the French Revolution even happened, there's, like, not even... a little bit in there as to like why it may have been justified or like, you know, there's, there is like one, there's only
1: the terror. There's only the, That's terror. It. there is like
0: mm-hmm. the one scene with the, like the older woman, like the grandmother taking care of the kids. Yeah, but and she they, wants the monarchy back. But then they shut her down and they're like, no <sighs> grandma, like you, we don't actually want the monarchy back. And she's like, mm-hmm, you know, <laughs> she like kind of, she's like, "Maybe, okay, young one. But the, otherwise, I mean, yeah, there's none of that energy as to like give you any semblance of like why this terror would have even started in the right. first place. Yeah. You know?
2: No, as we said before, like the way you're thrust into this story, like turns us all, turns the audience into people who can only react, thus turning us all into reactionaries. Like right. we just were thrust in with no context, other than to
0: say, "Isn't this bad?" Like, don't you dislike this? Yeah, you so know? when I was watching Reign of Terror, I was thinking about one of my favorite books that I've like read within the past couple of years, which is William Volman's Rising Up, Rising Down, which is like an, a massive essay about violence and revolution and when violence is ever justified. And you know, in his like exploration of this, he talks about the idea that, you know, one of the many reasons that revolutions fail is because like violence is justified up to a point, but then determined defining like when that point has been crossed when violence is no longer justified in a revolution is so often where they fall to pieces. And I was thinking about you talking about the idea that revolution is a becoming as opposed to like this like semblance of finality. And Reign of terror really seems like a film with the perspective that the French Revolution, like the violence was never justified. There's no sense that there's any sympathy for why we would get rid of a monarch. There's no, you know, there's no like, oh, they took it too far. It, the film seems to begin with the perspective that like this violence was never justified. Like there was never
1: a point where like any of this was okay. It is only darkness. It is only terror. Which, you know, as uh, many people have pointed out and I and I have as well, uh, only 15,000 people died in the Terror. Rough (laughs) speaking that's really not a lot of people if you're talking about world historical conflicts
0: more people died in the Telangana rebellion
1: right and and but that's the thing is that you know narratives of the french revolution historically have been dominated by the sort of reactionary or conservative read on it which is you know generously the revolution of 1880 or 1789 was good because you know it's sort of like it was giving you know people quote unquote democracy of some kind whereas then there's the Second French Revolution of 1792 when they fucking threw overthrew all that shit and, you know, banned the church and the aristocrats and, like, went all in on it. You know, the days of Danton and all that and the August insurrection. Like, yeah, even even in the immediate wake of, of the French Revolution, people were re-litigating it. Like, Robespierre was wrong. No, Robespierre was right. And even going forward into the future of French politics, even in times like 1830 or 1848, oftentimes your ideology is based on your interpretation of the French Revolution so in future revolutions people are like Robespierre went too far I believe this and other people are like he didn't go far enough I believe this and that's sort of like a core tenet of you know what interpreting history and and you know influencing future revolutions sure crazy
2: Absolutely. And again, what often is then able to be like levied against any other efforts subsequently to be made in in similar directions, right? right? So it's always thrown back and same thing with the Russian Revolution, right? Because you had the initial revolution and then you had, oh, we have a second one, right? And Mm -hmm. then, of course, following that, then the Civil War and so on and so forth. And it's the same thing. Over and over again, right? I mean, cyclical in that sense. Which
1: side are you on? Well, it looks like I'm in the middle. Yeah, so the music, Andy, was done by Saul Kaplan, who did, you know, a ton of classic Hollywood stuff but he's most famous for being friends with John Garfield. And so Kaplan was, you know, under the crosshairs of Huac uh, along with Garfield and some other people. And that, we haven't really talked about that too much. We sort of mentioned it. But Reign of Terror is, is even further complicated... You know, it's released after the first HUAC investigations, right? And it has, like, direct connection to it, obviously. You know, certain people involved in the production, whether it's the composer or even uh, Walter Wanger, who was, uh, I, as I read it described, he was an unhappy accomplice to the blacklist because he was a New Deal liberal. He was a, guess what? He's a producer. He is, like, Mr. Capitalist, free enterprise is the greatest, which is ironic he was like losing a bunch of money at this time and like he was like going broke trying to make all these films while making films about how free enterprise is great which is why he made canyon passage the jacques tornare uh. film was part of his great liberal project of being like the american sort of utopia and, and and reign of terror is kind of like part of you know in that time and so wanger had he had been denounced as having communist ties by the director sam wood who was basically like he was like red menace-pilled. Sam Wood went psychotic. There's, like, descriptions, accounts of his children being like, yeah, he he, he took anti-communism to a new level in his personal life, and his personal dealings. Anyway, he smeared Wanger uh, because Wanger had produced Blockade, which was an anti-fascist film from 1938, and he had done some good work that was very, again, he's like this New Deal liberal kind of guy who, like, adores FDR, and that's sort of the perspective he was coming from, but he was, you know, sort of shook by his connection to these communists in the film industry and so in the in the post-war period he took the republican line that was essentially like yeah like showcasing capitalism and free enterprise and just sort of like i have nothing to do with this and he's almost trying to like apologize for something he didn't do uh in in a really bizarre way but again that sort of like that vibe the huac vibe the witch hunt vibe is just imbued throughout reign of terror uh and it's almost again like you know it's just one of those things where it's like so obvious and then you look into it and you're like well it's not like really what they intended but it's still there and it is explicit i mean really
2: it's one of those films like um in that era like uh high noon where you have sort of multiple ways where you can read it right? Like, uh, and I think that's very much the case in in this, right? Because on the one hand, yes, you could read it as this sort of leftist terror, this revolutionary terror, but then it's also like... This is a movie about witch hunts. This is a movie about people being accused of things they didn't do. People like Danton, who were like, I'm just as for all this as the rest of you, but mm-hmm. I'm no extremist. I'm no this, that, I'm no enemy of the people. And yet they're 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 denounced and they're dragged in front of everyone. And the mob is is presented as very fickle, right? And they go some they kind of bounce back and forth themselves. So I think you're right in that regard that it it could be kind of read on multiple levels. Yeah, I saw
1: Hoberman sort of compared it to Invasion of the Body Snatchers in terms of sort of like, it took its anti-communism so far that it can be interpreted in the reverse manner. Uh, So Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it's just that sort of, you know, that's the genius of the system, right? That's the classic Hollywood magic, the, the incoherence of a film that is just, you know, ultimately, a guy shelled out $800,000 and said, put gags in it, right? <laughs> uh, and, and this is the result. I mean, it's it, it's like, it's also too, you know, a sort of sub genre man was working at the time was the infiltration movie, which you see in T Men and Border Incident, guys going undercover. Uh, and this is also part of that, which is, you know, very interesting because it's just, was supposed to be a historical drama. And they also kept slashing the budget. So one of the reasons it ended up the way it is is because it was originally like an A picture, then they couldn't get the stars, they really couldn't get the money, and the budget just kept dropping until it was like just up to man, Alton and Menzies to be like, okay, low-budget noir thriller, yeah. like, uh, okay, mm-hmm. uh-huh. you know, let's do it, Like because that's what they'd been doing anyway, especially Mann and Alton were in, like, you know, really working well together in that period. And their style of lighting took less time and cost less money because they used less lights, there's shadows everywhere. There you go, 30-day shoot, you're Yeah, out, you're out of there.
2: Yeah, you you, you see that, I think... And, and feel it as you watch the movie because there aren't a lot of big sweeping... Like, even the crowd stuff, it's like they use the rear projection even, I think, to, like, cut some corners on that stuff. And, and it is a lot of the movie is in, like, two shots and three shots and close-ups, you know? It's a lot of very sort of limited perspectives of something that is supposed to be huge and sweeping, right? But it, it adds to it, though, right? As a yeah. result of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really
1: claustrophobic too i mean yeah because exactly. they're talking about all these tight rooms and everything like that yeah you don't see like and an enemy around every corner yep right you turn you turn around and you're just being betrayed in a cramped room
0: yeah there's secret passages in the walls that you hide behind with your sword you know
1: yeah and again and you know to contrast it with mabumi right that film it just lays it all bare they're outdoors they're carrying sticks they're going sticks against guns at a certain point just rushing guys with rifles you know in peasant style just like we have the numbers we're united let's go knock some skulls and it's just like sunny and kind of like overblown uh and it's yeah it's just this sort of like heated thing i mean i guess you know again you want to connect these films it's like flames sun heat like the the hotness of revolution of some kind i don't know i'm just Mm -hmm.
0: that kind of makes me think this is a bit of an aside but i was wondering andy just like knowing weapons and stuff do you have any idea yeah, how those <laughs> bombs worked that they were using in mabumi they seemed like they seemed like grenades but they were like and they were like combustible but there was no wick or anything right you just like saw them whole, have you ever seen anything like that you know what that was uh no i don't yeah. know what that was. <laughs> like, i don't know what it was but i imagine whatever it
2: was was very improvisational uh, yeah, you know, I mean, they. you look at the what they're they're carrying, like Mar said, like, it's this collection of, like, anything from your bare fists to, uh, you know, gardening tools.
1: Well, they talk about, at a certain point, they start making their own low-grade yeah. weapons. Country guns. Yeah, yeah. country um, guns. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, country guns. Yeah, they're just these, like, tubes that you could just, you know... It's like
1: blunderbuss. Yeah,
2: fire, you know, a shotgun shell through or something like that. I mean, it, it is, like... I mean that is historically accurate, like you know the the collection of weapons that they're carrying are coming every carrying everything from like you know uh percussion ball and cap you know muzzle loaders to modern British bolt action rifles that mm-hmm. you know England would give to the indian army there's shotguns there's yeah these these homemade weapons of all sorts yeah because they
1: you know they they uh they get raided by these like paramilitaries all the time sort of throughout the film and uh yeah you just take their guns right i mean that's what they do ultimately yeah they're sort of building this revolution or this rebellion from scratch and that's another just like part of the movie again that just like really stirs you up you know yeah Uh. i think about that shot (laughs) when he's teaching all of the women how to shoot oh yeah so awesome
0: she's like cleaning something or she's preparing something and the guy says you know like oh why don't you learn to shoot she's like well i mean yeah if someone teaches me and then boom we get it you know like they're all lined yeah, up Yeah,
1: rama's got the ladies out you know so in a awesome. row getting their target practice yeah village
2: in. unity that did though since you like bring up like weapons it did strike me in in reign of terror and black book like i don't know if either of you noticed that but there are so many shots of just them in corridors and you know in back rooms and there's just rifles like on the walls like just stacked rifles everywhere there's just weapons all over the place just stacked up and I was like I was like even remarking when I was watching the movie to myself I was just like Jesus Christ look at all these weapons just tucked away and hidden away and like you know especially
1: um, in Robespierre's hideout yeah, yeah
2: yeah There's so many guns and weapons in in that movie as well, just knives and swords, and everybody's got their little pocket pistols. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like it's it's I think a you know this sort of almost statement on on yeah, this just like this violence that's everywhere, just like yeah, at the drop of a hat, you know, this thing's kicking off
0: and people are blowing each other away. Yeah, it's I just, love when everybody's the- ready for it. I love when the little boy uses uh, his pillow as a weapon to distract the guard when he, like, shoves. The, they're, like, farting around in the room so they could steal the black book away when they're, like, raiding that their little farm home. And, yeah, he, like... Even the kids get in on the violence, you know? I was wondering, did you... I didn't totally understand exactly what was happening when those people were, like, strung up and being tortured. Like, specifically, were they just being stretched, or was there something, like, in their skin? It was, like, a little shadowy, so he I had, couldn't quite
2: tell. I think he had the, those,
0: like, um,
2: thumb screws in. The first guy had, like, thumb screws in, because you can see the blood, like, trickling down oh, his arms. Oh, so they were, like,
0: twisting it into their wrists? So, no, or...
2: he, he's hung up by his thumbs, and they would put, like, a screw in your thumb and they would like screw this thing through your thumb and so basically he's trying to stand up to take the pressure off of his thumb. oh my god did you see the blood trickling yeah. down his arm yeah let us
1: like, let me explain this here for our listeners you know if you haven't seen *Ran of Terror Robespierre runs the revolution out of a, a basement of a bakery <laughs>
0: And there's a couple
1: really great sequences, yeah, where the main character, Charles, you know, under the guise of his uh, costume, as it were, pretending to be someone else, he goes to visit Robespierre, and he has to go through all these guys baking bread, and it's just these, like, French guys with mustaches, just, like, flour going everywhere. At
0: one point, shirtless, too, Yeah, those
1: guys. (laughs) Oh, yeah, those are my favorite guys in the whole movie. (laughs) And then he goes downstairs, and it's, like, Robespierre's office has like a torture chamber and it's just full of weapons and black books as well yeah
0: but... <laughs> and yeah that first time you go down there someone's being strung up and being tortured and fouché is just like why don't you eat your bun good hmm?
1: <laughs> delicious He's eating it with it. He's got it's like skewered on a knife. Yeah. And he's just eating his <laughs> yeah. bun. Yeah. You yeah. know, I read that Moss improvised a lot of those lines, according to Anthony Mann. And, you know, especially all the cheeky stuff. Right. So like when he sees uh, Madeline and Charles, a.k.a. Duval, out in the street, he's like, there's a revolution going on. Don't stay out late. That was ad-libbed. You know, these little asides, like the joke about the bun. Uh, And it does give, yeah, a lot of these performances in Reign of Terror you know the main guy notwithstanding I think he's kind of like a, a dud yeah he's kind of a dud in the main role but like everyone a else a hunk yeah Absolutely, apparently yeah. he was a comedy actor I read I wish it was Dana Andrews <laughs> we all wish it was Dana yeah. Andrews but I think yeah I think the cast at large is really yeah, hamming it up in the best way possible uh, and especially like you brought up earlier base heart and I was thinking about this as well because one of the projects man did I think the same year as Black Book is he walked by night and man cast Basehart as a serial killer and so just going from you know Basehart as this like mustachioed serial killer to Robespierre like he gets this sort of this element of Basehart where you believe that this guy's like yeah he's psychotic in a way you would believe later that Jimmy Stewart is psychotic in an Anthony Mann film it's got that sort of intensity
2: Basehart has a I think very underrated range for actors. Like he's 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 one of these guys that like for some reason I don't know if you remember if either of you guys were big mystery science theater three thousand fans, but Richard sure. Basehart was often like a punchline for like MST three K dorks or whatever. Like oh Richard Basehart, you know? And like for me, I've often looked at Richard Basehart as this guy that like has a lot of range, you know, like, I mean, he's also in, in Fellini's La Strada as the, as the fool. Right. And this sort of, you know, really just, um, um, charming presence. But, but to me, I think base heart is just like, not really, he's never really truly. He never really truly was utilized probably right. to, to like where he could go. Cause even in this as Robespierre, like especially like near the end, that final speech, it, it shook me even like when you see, like, even he turns the crowd, like they're ready to cut his head off. And like you said, this like virtue that he sees in himself, like he, be he sort of like just elevates in that moment to, to not even just a person, but, but something so much bigger, right? The idea, the the virtue, the revolution, whatever. But like, to me, Baseheart is, is, yeah, I mean, he's doing something psychological with this role that, Takes it to um, a place of, of, oh God, I think tremendous depth. I mean, personally, like, I I felt that way anyway
1: yeah because even you've got Norman Lloyd in there as Talion the sort of other uh, kind of like aligned with Barris as this counter counter counter-revolutionary force Uh, and he even yeah has this like mysterious kind of like uh, impish quality to him where he's like it's Norman Lloyd but he's like really threatening somehow and it's this odd contradiction so yeah I think besides the lead guy everyone is very expressive as the film sort of demands Mm -hmm. but then you got the Dud at the center, yeah, you know, but
2: that's almost even like a Hitchcockian thing, right? Like Hitchcock loved casting very yeah, dynamic people. Yeah, he would have a dud <laughs> as the, the the you know the the protagonist, the 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 citizen, the law-abiding citizen, and he would always like to pair them up with some actor who could just take that more villainous character to a whole nother level, right? And then you kind of look at them and you gleefully, you know, sort of enjoy their presence more than you do this straight man, basically, right? This sort of like, well, come on now, everybody, you know? But like, Fouché, like you said, like, I love in this movie that he is just constantly popping up behind people. Like, throughout the movie, like, he's just, he's like everywhere, you know? And he's just always sort of like leaning in, like you said, with
0: this all like... Hey there, nice night for a walk, huh? You know, he's like, he's everywhere. He's, I mean,
2: he's it, it
0: almost felt like Fouché was the guy I was rooting for the whole time. Oh, absolutely. Our main guy's so bland that, like, his yeah, him just like stealing the book. I'm like, whatever, you know, like, I'm not rooting for him, but yeah, like, Fouché and they're like, this guy's up to something, you know, well, as as the and the he's
2: intro, playing every side against the middle. Yeah,
1: they say, uh. Always on both sides, never in the middle. And, you know, true to the historical person of of Fouché, he did have a long and thriving career in many administrations. (laughs) So, you know, he was, there were a lot of guys. Look, there were guys that survived the French Revolution and served long in the government for future kings, you know? So, and you see how it's done here. You play both sides against the middle. You get choked out, but... You know, for some reason, the dud leaves you alive. Oh, my and God. And you live a long, prosperous life. I
2: right? know. I even love that, right? Like, you, he's like a fucking cockroach. You can't get rid of him. Like, yeah. when he gets choked out, again, it's an incredibly violent scene where he's getting choked, to death presumably and he's like laying there on the ground and his head's like twisted he looks dead his eyes are wide open and then he just pops up again later like (laughs) not he's almost got me huh you know it's like jesus christ this guy he's fucking you can't get rid of him like you gotta love that kind of survivor like spirit you know it's better then he bumps into napoleon at the ending you know like oh maybe i'll see you around you know like yeah of course you will yeah i mean he's great and i would also you know, we were, you know, you did talk about Richard Basehart and I think it should be pointed out as well since we, we've already brought this up before and it's been mentioned and, you know, I, I I would be remiss to not. Richard Basehart was a great Columbo villain at one point, too. That's right. You know, he played a, a, an English actor in an episode of Columbo where Columbo goes to London and Richard Basehart and... That's right. Hon- <laughs> it's Honor Blackman. Yeah. I, it's Honor Blackman. They're a couple... Who are these British? They're English actors, and they, you know, they kill some villainous producer or something like that, you know. And then Columbo's, of course, you know.
0: I knew I recognized him. him. Yeah, from that's Bassheart awesome. in an episode of
2: Columbo. Wow. I, I just want to point this out because I'm hoping as we go on through this, yeah. we every week try to figure out one way to connect. what Columbo. We've watched yeah. Columbo. <laughs> yeah. or, you, know? like, you pointed out all the connections with the Hunter last week, and yeah. I'm like. I got one right here, based on Colombo Villain, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the six degrees of Colombo or whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean, deep down that's what really we're we're always talking about. Oh, Colombo
2: has this yeah. sort of this node that connected old Hollywood, new Hollywood, international mm-hmm. cinema. Absolutely.
0: Well, I was just thinking about last week when we were talking about fathers. And while I guess Reign of Terror doesn't necessarily have, like, a daddy. I mean, you could think of... Robespierre is
1: the daddy of the people.
0: Exactly. So I guess I would extend the question that I asked last week to this week. Who would you rather have as your daddy? Robespierre or Ramaya's like, defeatist father who's, like, begging for land and wants to be front of the line and just, like, forces you to eat gruel all day? Oh my God. Well, first of all, I thought you were going to go with uh, Ramaya as
2: the dad because there is that, you know, isn't there something in there about him wanting to have a son or,
0: you know, being a father at some point? Maybe, yeah. I mean, well, of course, he would be the the dad to pick but i would like to the comparison to be uh his <laughs> well, father with robespierre gotcha.
2: well robespierre was a father right didn't he have a son wasn't there robespierre the elder and robespierre the yeah younger? there was
1: the younger yes and he
2: was like in his assassination or his whatever his his turning out like the son was like with his dad the whole time and you know like freaking out so i'm sure they had a nice relationship he seemed very loyal to his father um from what i understand but again, if you're asking me, who would I rather have as my dad, Robespierre or <laughs> Ram- Ramayá's dad? Yeah, um, I'm gonna have to go with Robespierre on this one. I think. Okay. You know, I feel like I'd live a little bit more comfortably. Um, and though that isn't everything, uh, you'd be the son of a lawyer. I'd be the son of a lawyer. I mean, I'd get to wear you know nice breeches, a, a good powdered wig, and you know I'm a bit of a a shoe guy, and I really like those shoes with the buckles. So, I think I'd probably go that way. Great answer.
1: Marsh? Uh, You know, I actually want the the communist guy to be my dad. From Mabumi. Right? I know that's not your question. Okay. But, (laughs) (laughs) look... Of
0: course I you want know, the communist figure.
1: Rad- yeah, well we're talking about you know talking about dad's father figures. That guy's a father figure in that oh, film. Oh, you're you know? talking
0: about the like the guy leading the communist cell in Hyderabad. Or are you talking about Ramaya?
1: No, I'm talking about the guy leading the communist cell. Cool. The guy who's got, you know, uh, he's got Lenin on the wall, he's got Stalin on the desk, he's got Marx and Engels on the table, he's listening to the radio, and like me, he's just yelling, this is propaganda, this is propaganda, this is garbage, and he turns off the radio. And I thought, I want to be this guy's son.
0: <laughs> Both very good answers, though. A uh, good, good, I think I'll ask this
1: every week. Mine's pretty superficial, but I'm going to stand by it, you know? So, you know, we've been talking about our films. But what about you, Andy? You got any revolutionary films or films about revolution that uh, you want to, you know, sort of highlight here? Oh, man, absolutely. You know, if I I had picked, you know,
2: there's if I had brought a movie to the table this week, there's so many I probably would have picked. And so many you can only pick one, though. Yeah, I know, I know, but that's that's what would have also made it very agonizing for me. So I guess, I guess I don't know, a, a few that, that really, I think, stand out that I think are worthy, you know, for, for anybody, too, if you're listening and, and you just, you know, you maybe want to do a deeper dive into this kind of thing. There's a few that really stand out for me. Um, I think one of my personal favorite films, one that we've talked about before, Marsh, uh, La Commune by Peter Watkins, which is just an incredible act, even, of you know creativity more than it's just like oh a cool movie about revolutions but the way he approached it um it's it's brilliant if you haven't seen it um definitely
1: a future topic or future uh, pick for this this very podcast uh, yeah. i would hope one of these days ryan mm-hmm. we're gonna drag you absolutely uh, into yeah the i comedy. mean i o-
0: that was almost gonna be what i picked because i haven't seen it well, But one of these days yeah yeah
2: I also think um, uh, another one, Marsh, I know that you're a big fan of as well. Ken Loach's uh, Land and Freedom. Oh, yeah. About the, the Spanish Civil War um, is a, a magnificent film. I think it's really beautiful.
1: And another, yeah, another real bummer. Well, I mean, we all know you know how the Spanish Civil War turned out. But yeah, that film really got to me. I'm not necessarily the biggest Loach guy, but that one, like, really, I think it's really, really wonderfully done.
2: And then I'm also a big fan just in general of, like, that whole subgenre of, like, spaghetti westerns that sort of are all set during the Mexican Revolution,
1: particularly. I mean,
2: (laughs) Sergio Leone's Duck, You Sucker, I think, is incredible. Sergio Corbucci made several. Uh, I recently
1: watched uh, Companeros, which I found to be... Uh, extremely delightful, uh, and I haven't stopped listening to the s- the score. Uh, oh yeah, since
2: Compañeros is is amazing. So yeah, I mean, uh, so many, and and like you said, I'm I'm hoping that you know somehow as the topics progress, uh, we'll figure out a way to wind some of those in there. You know, rope them in there somehow. Because beyond just being films about revolution, all those films that we've just mentioned are are great films for for other reasons as well. You know, so. I'm gonna have to pass the torch now. We had Marsh's topic last week and mine this week. So now we're gonna turn it over to you, Ryan. What do you have in store
0: for Marsh and I? What are we tasked with bringing to the gauntlet next week? So next week, I want you guys to take me outside and to take me fishing. I want the theme of next week to be gone fishing. Uh, Get me out in the open air, get me out on the water, and uh, let's see what we catch.
1: That's awesome. Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, as always, yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or email us at Gauntlet Movies Podcast. Peace. I have killed only for you.